This is Nick Dodge and Rachel Fields with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Former Supreme Court Justice and recent taxpayer-funded elections investigator Michael Gableman has issued a new round of subpoenas, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. The subpoenas issued last week are for the Wisconsin Elections Commission's Democratic Chairperson Ann Jacobs, Madison Chief Information Officer Sarah Edgerton, and Finance Director David Schmidicke. The subpoena did incorrectly refer to David as Dan, however. The subpoenas also demanded records related to Dominion Voting Systems machines, although Madison does not use those machines. The new subpoenas come after several legal battles against Gableman. A Waukesha County judge has scheduled a hearing for Gableman at the end of this month on his move to compel mayors of Madison and Green Bay to meet with him or face jail time. Gableman is also under legal scrutiny from a Dane County Circuit Court judge about whether he has any authority to demand private, in-person interviews about the election, a case which plans to have a decision by January 10th. Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway issued a statement earlier today calling the investigation a, quote, waste of time and taxpayer dollars. The man the city of Madison selected to be the first independent police monitor has declined the position. The candidate, Byron Bishop, is the current Madison Department of Civil Rights Equal Opportunities Division. Uh, Bishop confirmed to the Wisconsin State Journal today that he will not be accepting the position, citing, quote, job neutrality and the politics associated with the position, unquote. The Police Civilian Oversight Board made a conditional offer to Bishop last month. Both Bishop and Tiffany Simmons were originally picked as finalists for the position in October, but Simmons had dropped out of the position for the position shortly afterwards, leaving Bishop to be the sole finalist. This means that a year after the position was created, finding the city's first independent police monitor must start from square one. The position originally had 30 applicants, 10 of which were brought in for oral interviews. The position has also attracted controversy after one applicant, Eric Hill, claimed that the board had discriminated against him for being a white man and former member of the military. Hill filed a state and federal discrimination complaint against the city in November. Is your New Year's resolution to know who represents you? Well, with the start of the new year, some Madison residents may have a different alder than just a few days ago. That's due to local redistricting changes made last year, which took effect on January 1st. Meanwhile, it's not too early to look ahead to several elections this year. The deadline for candidates planning to run in the April spring election to submit their paperwork is coming up tomorrow. And if you're looking ahead to spring or even fall elections this year, it's not too early to request your absentee ballot for all the 2022 elections. Already registered voters can do so at myvote.wi.gov. If you still have a Christmas tree in your living room, you're in luck as the city begins their Christmas tree collection today. There will be two rounds of collections by the city, with the first round starting today and going until January 14th. The city asks that you move your tree to the curb as soon as possible so that it doesn't get missed in the first round of collections. And if it does, no need to worry because the second round will begin in mid-January. Wreaths, evergreen ropes, and garlands will not be collected with trees, so make sure to place them in your regular garbage bins. 
Also, be sure to remove everything from the tree as any metal, wire, or other material may damage the wood chippers. Failure to remove these items may result in your tree being left on the curb. You may also dispose of your tree at a drop-off site, which can be found at cityofmadison.com streets. Or donate your tree for use in a local art installation until the end of the month at the designated drop-off point in Ulbrich Park. These trees will be used in a temporary art installation coming in February. And now for today's COVID update. Today, Wisconsin hit over 1 million confirmed COVID cases since the start of the pandemic, with a seven-day average of 5,392 positive cases per day and 24.5% of tests coming back positive. Wisconsin broke another record last week as the state hit over 10,000 deaths. Yesterday, there were no recorded deaths from the virus. As COVID cases continue to rise across the state, many hospitals are reaching capacity. WPR reports that at Advocate Aurora, Wisconsin's largest hospital system, 528 patients are being treated for COVID. Statewide, 1,710 people were hospitalized due to the virus on Friday. The increase in COVID hospitalizations, combined with low staff, has forced Advocate to close three Aurora Urgent Care Centers in the Milwaukee area so that they can help manage staff surges at other facilities. These centers will remain closed through Thursday. Chief Medical Group Officer Jeff Barr says this is largely a problem of the unvaccinated and asks everyone to get vaccinated as soon as possible. Currently, 62.1% of Wisconsinites have received at least one dose of the vaccine, with 58.2% having completed their vaccine series. And now, on to today's top stories. Last year at the polls, Madison residents gave their opinion on how the city of Madison should be structured. That question could again head to the ballot box this spring, and this time it could be binding. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has the story. In spring of 2021, Madison residents gave their opinion on the job of city alders through a set of non-binding referendums. Essentially, these four questions were opinion polls intended to gauge the perspective of voters before moving ahead with any changes. And they came from a city task force analyzing the structure of Madison government, which had been working for years to address how the city can work more effectively for all of its residents. Now, some alders are looking to take that feedback and put it into action using the results of last spring's election to create binding referendums this spring. Alder Grant Foster says that the task force found multiple components that limited the access of city governments to segments of the community. They you know, highlighted some information around membership of our, of our city boards, committees, and commissions. So kind of disproportionately... Uh, a lot of folks from downtown uh, Isthmus area near West had a lot of representation on those bodies. Um, and there were a number of, of older districts and areas of the city that had very little, if any, representation. So that was sort of one. Currently, alders make around $13,000 a year and work as alders part time. 
the first question on last year's ballot, asked whether elected alders should work full-time and be compensated as such, increasing the pay to around forty-five dollars to $71,000 a year. In a memorandum written by City Attorney Michael Haas in November, the results of last year's election showed that many people who voted were fine with the current structure of city government. 58% of those polled voted no to this question, though it was presented as a two-part question that some saw as confusing. Alder Keith Furman is the chair of the current work group charged with implementing any suggested changes to the structure of city government. He says that getting a straight yes or no answer to the question was not the sole purpose of the non-binding referendum. I don't think, you know, if, if you look at the individual questions, I don't, I think there's, there, there's certainly a lot to learn. Um, I think if you look at the full time, which was referendum question number one, the results were 58 to 42 on on whether or not the council should be full time. Um, I, I absolutely agree with people that say that it really wasn't explained well. You know, I, I think all the questions, frankly, were not necessarily uh, given a, a really good opportunity for the community to learn more about it. It all happened kind of quickly. Um, but the, the idea really behind the non-binding was to kind of feel out the temperature and so we really get an understanding of where are people, and, and even with a limited amount of information, you know, with, with what our current structure is. The second question looked at the size of the council, asking if the council should be larger, smaller, or stay the same size. The three-part question had an overwhelming majority choosing one answer, keep the size of the council the same which received 70% of the vote. The third question looked at creating four-year terms for Madison Alders, expanded from the current two-year term. With the most even split of the questions, 55% voted no to expanding the term length. The final question looked at adding a term limit to Alders of 12 consecutive years. While this was largely voted in favor, with 71% voting yes, the question was worded to only be for full-time alders, which would need to be implemented first. If the council wants to add any referendas to the spring ballot, they have less than a month and just two remaining meetings to do so. At least one alder, Keith Furman, says that he intends to try and put the wheels in motion at the council tomorrow night, enabling the council to meet their deadline of January 25th. But what parts of the many possible changes to the council's structure were not apparent. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggy Hout. Students in Madison's public schools are not yet back in school in the new year. That follows a decision to delay the return to in-person instruction, with plans for next week's next week and beyond to be announced at a later date. WORT reporter Ben Kern tells us more. Winter break is a little longer than expected for students in the Madison School District. Last week, district leaders announced they were extending winter break, postponing classes that were scheduled to start today. Students now have a few extra days of winter break, leaving some families scrambling. The Madison Metro School District is expected to have virtual instruction this Thursday and Friday. No plans for in-person classes have been released yet. School officials say they hope in-person classes will resume as early as next Monday, January 10th. Another announcement will be made this Thursday. The school board announced their decision to extend winter break last Thursday, then explained the decision at a press conference held last Friday. Superintendent Carlton Jenkins says the extension is aimed at keeping the district and community safe from rising COVID-19 cases, citing staff shortages and the high risk of spreading COVID-19 during the busy holiday season as other factors in the decision. 191 new cases of COVID-19 were reported within the MMSD over a two-week period in the last half of December. Though students don't start school until Thursday, faculty and staff were required to report back to their locations today to plan and prepare. 
Meanwhile, the district is still offering free meals for students during the extended winter break. Outside of the school district, the city of Madison has also seen a drastic increase in COVID-19 cases since the holiday season. On New Year's Eve alone, 1,890 new cases were reported within Dane County, a single-day record that was previously set and broken by the two previous days. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Ben Kern. It's now 6.18 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. With Madison schools extending their winter break for three days and moving to virtual learning for at least two days, parents are now tasked with balancing work and childcare. The Progress Center for Black Women in Madison announced yesterday that they will be offering free childcare all week to give parents who have to go back to work after the holiday a place for their children to go. WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with the founder and director of the center, Sabrina Madison, about the program. I'm on the line with Sabrina Madison, founder and director of the Progress Center for Black Women. Sabrina, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks for reaching out and inviting me to do so. Yeah, of course. So just starting off, what made you decide to offer free child care this week? What drove you to take this action? Yeah, well, we the Progress Center definitely uh, aims to be there and, you know, sort of be a supportive resource for especially black families, but the greater community as well. And so when we saw the call from MMSD that they were going to close and, you know, adjust their schedules due to COVID, um, we just decided, hey, we can be a resource. Uh, We saw a lot of stress over social media from families, community members, educators. And if one thing we can do is just be sort of like this bright light at a time when, you know, folks are just have another layer of stress to deal with this week. So obviously the center is not usually a daycare. What does the space look like now with children around? Did you have to change the space in any way to accommodate the children? Well, so we will start having kids first thing tomorrow morning as we even have a large family of kids. I think there are seven children. So um, normally our space is set up like a co-working space, like a traditional co-working space, except we have um, couches and comfortable chairs for lounging. Simple, it's not too big of a deal for us because, again, it's already set up for co-working. We're just going to slide in a couple extra larger tables to give kids more room to stretch out and, you know, put their books and food on, for example. But for the most part, not too much uh, adjusting, just pushing in some extra tables and maybe pushing a chair, a couch or two back. So will you still be open for, say, the shared co-working space during uh, while you're also doing the child care? No. So this week we will center the space in of itself 100 percent towards uh, families who need a space for their, uh, their kids. 
The good thing about it is that we had already moved our in-person programming all virtual, so we did not expect to have adults working from the space this month, you know, just due to the high transmission of COVID right now. What are you doing to mitigate that spread of COVID at the center? Yep. So we are limiting our capacity of kids to no more than 30 on any given day this week. Uh, We do ask all kids um, to be to wear their mask for the duration of their day, with the exception of stepping into a different room if they're, you know, eating or enjoying a snack or something to drink. Um, We will have plenty of hand sanitizing and um, just things to keep the space clean from, you know, because kids touch lots of just high touchers. So we'll be sure to wipe things down as we move along the day. Um, For our adult volunteers who are all educators, they have to be vaccinated in order to volunteer. The kids don't have to be vaccinated because, you know, kids are in various stages of being able to be vaccinated and some parents might not be ready for their kids to be vaccinated. But as long as they wear their mask and we know their vaccination status, we'll do our best to just manage that situation. But um, the space is large enough where kids don't have to sort of be, you know, grouped so closely together, there's enough room to stretch out um, and be in different parts of the space while they're here. So we think we can, we, we're hoping we can manage it and we aim to manage it. So you said earlier in a separate interview that there will be activities planned for the children oh, yeah. this week. Yeah. Uh, what yeah. sort of activities do you have planned for the children? So thanks to Dom Ricks, who's the principal over there in the Middleton district. He gave me some really, really good advice about creating a routine, especially for elementary age children. And so, of course, we'll have a snack time, a lunch time, but we also will have a reading hour or two. Uh, we're asking folks to donate to us uh, board games for kids. So we may have a game hour um, and just some time, you know, there may be some time for conversation just to talk about what we're experiencing. Uh, we do intend to keep the kids in their um, virtual education schedule. So we'll just make sure that our activities align well with what, you know, they're responsible for throughout their normal uh, work day or educational day. So speaking of that educational day, you what sort of things are you going to be offering once they do move to virtual learning on Thursday? Uh, what sort of things are you going yep. to do to help the kids to with their schoolwork? Yep. The good thing about it is our volunteers are all educators, and so they have experience using the same software platforms that the kids are doing their learning on. So they can be here to act as tutors, act as motivators, reviewers, that sort of thing. And then we'll just still offer those complimentary activities such as the uh, reading hour, the games. We might even go, you know, all out because it looks like we may end up having a couple high schoolers. So we may go ahead and grab a gaming system for the high schoolers who, you know, want to game during their lunch hour. So speaking of volunteers, you also said that you are looking for some volunteers. What sort of volunteers are you looking for? Do they need to have educational background or things like that? So we are only interested right now in accepting volunteers who are fully vaccinated and boosted if they're in that boosted window and volunteers who are currently working in a um, either education or nonprofit in which they would have had a recent or, you know, within the last year or two background check. Um, so we want to make sure that families feel very safe with their kids here. We want to ensure that our volunteers are the best people to work with the kids who are here. So, again, we're asking that volunteers who do uh, sign up to assist us this week are either current educators or they're leading in a um, leadership uh, role at a local nonprofit. For the most part, 
I believe just about all of our volunteers will be educators who it sounds like a couple of them will bring their kids with them when they volunteer with us. Now, who will be able to come to the center and how can families get their kids into the center? Do they need to make a reservation yep. or things like that? Yep. Yep. So uh, we do have a interest form that we've been sending out. So if they simply give us a phone call at 608-467-6744, we can capture it over the phone or they can send us an email to hello at centerforblackwomen.org. All of this is also on our website. You can always shoot us a message through the website at centerforblackwomen.org. But again, we want to keep our capacity daily to no more than 30 students. Uh, The interest form would allow us to collect just some very generic information from you. um, And then we'll, for families who we take on, we'll send them a much longer form um, to learn more about their kids um, after that initial discussion. So, uh, Sabrina, that's all the questions that I have for you. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share? Yeah, I just always want to shout out and say thank you to the Madison community because the Progress Center for Black Women would not exist had it not been for individuals in this community who continue to financially support it, which allows us to have this space available. So in short, the Progress Center being open to families this week is simply a return on the community's investment in us. So. All right. Well, I've been talking with Sabrina Madison, founder and director of the Progress Center for Black Women here in Madison, which is offering free child care all week at the center. Sabrina, thank you so much for talking with me again. And just real quick, do you want to just put that number out one last time? Yeah, give us a call. We are here uh, daily from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. at 608-467-6744. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Forward Lookout has the week ahead in local government. Bridging the Gap counts down Gen Z moments from 2021. And the Monday Movie Review looks at two new sci-fi flicks. But now we'll take a quick break, and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us. Every Monday, contributor Brenda Conkle looks ahead to city, county, and school agendas to find what's coming up in local government. This week on Forward Lookout, the gears of government grind back up again after the holidays. Conkle sat down with producer Dylan Brogan earlier this afternoon. All right, it's Monday. That means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. Well, Happy New Year, Brenda. Happy New Year to you, too. So we'll start with Dane County, as usual. Uh, The Personnel and Finance Committee is meeting virtually at 530, so already in progress. So what what is this committee discussing? Um, they got lots of routine items, you know, uh, leases, change orders, contract addendums, you know, all the boring stuff that the government has to do to 
to keep things going. Um, but some of the more interesting things on their agenda is there's some more grants for the sheriff's department to get various things like uh, sniper training course, as well as bomb suit protection equipment. <laughs> so um, that's a little bit interesting. They also have, um, they're gonna be approving new medical examiner and deputy medical examiner for Dane County. Um, but you can take a look, they got lots of, um, typical stuff on their agenda. The other thing that they do have is that they're looking at the borrowing for the next year. So um, obligation bonds and promissory notes is what that is called. Also happening today is the the City County Homeless Issues Committee already in progress started at 530. So uh, one of them, uh, this is city and county meeting, so is authorizing the mayor uh, for funds for to improve what's going on in Dairy Drive. So you know something about this with the permanent men's shelter there. So what, what's going on? Um, this is authorizing the mayor to go out and solicit funds. Normally they can't go out and do that. So this is authorizing her to do that um, without it being an ethics violation. Apparently she wants to um, ask MGE to pay for the electric bills there. Um, and then she's looking at setting up a, a, a system where people can donate money for the men's shelter. So that's uh, authorizing her to be able to do that. Um, the other things they have on their agenda is the committee work plan as well as updates about um, the Shelter Providers Committee and the Men's Shelter. And starting a new year in COVID still very much top of mind. And on Wednesday, 5 p.m., the Board of Public Health for Madison and Dane County will be getting another COVID-19 update. Um, yeah, what can you tell us about uh, what this important board is doing? Sure. Um, the COVID update, you have to attend to be able to hear it. Um, they don't really have anything in writing in advance. Um, they also have some budget transfers and some agreements that they're looking at for some various grants that they're getting from um, from the national and state type uh, programs. They'll also be, um, they have an item at the end which just says discussion items, open topic. So I guess if you have items you'd like them to be discussing, you could show up and give them your opinion. Moving on to Thursday, it's the first uh, full county board meeting of the new year. That happens at 7 o'clock, like I said, Thursday. So what's the county board up to? Um, you know, I think they've sort of had a, a lull over the holidays, um, but there are a few things on the agenda, um, some of which I've already mentioned earlier. Um, but there is some rezoning out at Cherokee Park that people might be interested in. They are doing a golf course ecological restoration project and declassifying a wetland. So that may be of interest to some folks. Um, they also are, um, they have that uh, resolution asking the um, public health director to pull back her emergency order until public input and consent of the governed has been achieved over the mask orders, um, which, you know, every time we think COVID is going away, it comes back with a vengeance. So um, I'm not sure this is very good timing for that particular thing. And then they do have a lot of those items that I mentioned earlier about the medical examiner and the sheriff's department funding. So this resolution, I mean, obviously it has to be debated, but it would it would end the mask mandate. Asking her to end the mask mandate. I don't think they Until have Until public input. Help. Yeah. Okay. Right, right. I don't think they have the ability to actually tell her to do it, but they are asking for more public input. So we'll see once how that goes. But my guess is it's going to go down in flames. <laughs> Moving on to the city of Madison, uh, happening Tuesday, uh, 4.30 is the Common Council uh, Executive uh, Committee, followed by... Uh, the full uh, meeting of alders uh, on the Common Council at 6.30. So, yeah, so what's the Executive Council doing? And then um, what's on tap for alders at their first meeting of the new year? A lot, it looks like. 
Yeah, so the uh, the Common Council Chief of Staff hiring process and transit network redesign progress updates will be on the Common Council Executive Committee's agenda. And then they're also getting the reports about um, surveillance. There was a committee that they had had that um, made all the departments report. Um, and this is the first time that they're getting this series of reports about surveillance technology that various departments are using. Um, haven't had a chance to look at it yet, but for people who are interested in that, it might be of interest. Um, and the Common Council, they have a few public hearings on liquor licenses. Um, they're agreeing to keep their, um, their meetings virtual through um, the end of May. Um, and then they have a whole bunch of sort of routine items on their agenda. I would say probably some of the more interesting things are, you know, they're setting up the polling locations um, and um, in-person absentee voting for the spring primary and spring election. Um, they are also adopting their older COVID-19 vaccination and testing policy. The South Madison plan is up for final approval. That's been through many committees. And so people who are interested in that might want to uh, have the last chance to give some input on that. And um, then they are going to once again, talk about the Common Council Executive Committee and what their jurisdiction is. And also they're gonna be talking about an advisory referendum again in the spring um, to determine whether the binding referendum about the structure of the city council, the, the TFOGS recommendations, they're talking about having another advisory referendum on that. And what were they advised last time, uh, essentially, when it went to referendum? To not change anything. It was pretty inconclusive, yes. They pretty much didn't want to change anything, so. I, I guess they'll try again. Like figure out what to do. <laughs> yes. 4.30 Wednesday, the Board of Public Works is meeting virtually. This is where you get your assessments when they do street work. Um, and so they'll be talking about some Old Middleton Road and Craig Avenue resurfacing assessment districts. And then they will be uh, looking at some uh, changes to how they bill people for stormwater utility. And then they're getting a presentation by Girl Scout Troop number 1477, and they will be hearing from them about what they think about climate change. They'll also be looking at the stormwater assessment policy and approving the Madison standard specifications for public works construction. So, you know, what do public works folks have to do to protect the trees or, you know, how much soil are they going to put on your terrace when they uh, do street constructions and things like that? All right, Brenda. Well, thank you so much for walking us through this week in local government. And as always, you can head on over to forwardlookout.com if you want more information about what's happening this week in local government. So thank you, Brenda, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. On today's edition of The Past Isn't Past, feature contributor Harry Richardson recalls the successful strike in Little Falls, Mohawk Valley, New York, of 1912 to 1913. For our brothers and our sisters up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women standing up and standing Today, strong. January 3rd marks the victorious end of the Little Falls, New York textile workers strike in 1913. The strikers, mostly Eastern European women and children, overcame police attacks, the united opposition of local business elites, the clergy, 
and the press to defeat a 10% pay cut. They were part of the broader movement of militant organizing across the nation by the industrial workers of the world, IWW. The solidarity efforts and advocacy by the Socialist Party was also key to their success. In the Mohawk Valley of upstate New York, women and children as young as 13 commonly worked the mills. Jeannie McTiernan, one of these child workers, recalled the horrendous noise of the machines and the sexual advances of the mill owners and their managers. When the State Factory Investigating Committee came to town, a local tuberculosis nurse, Helen Schlaz, provided investigators with evidence of unsanitary conditions in the factories and the crowded tenements. Her socialist allegiances were probably unknown to her employers. No action happened until tragedy forced the hand of New York's legislature. After 146 women died in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in 1911, the legislature reduced the work week for women and children statewide from 60 hours to 54. In response, owners of Little Falls' two knitting mills promptly reduced workers' hours and pay. The reduction in their near-starvation wages outraged the workers. On October 9, 1912, 80 workers spontaneously walked out of the Phoenix Mill in protest. Perhaps prompted by a call from nurse Helen Schlaz, the next day Socialist Party organizers came from Schenectady, began making speeches, and got arrested. A few days later, the Socialist Mayor of Schenectady made a speech supporting the strikers and also got arrested. Eventually, 2,000 workers from both mills walked out. Police Chief Long strictly enforced local laws against free speech in assembly, saying, We have a strike on our hands and a foreign element to deal with. We have in the past kept them in subjugation and mean to hold them where they belong. Long's effort backfired as the socialists sent hundreds of supporters to town, leading to mass arrests, overflowing the local jails. The IWW also came to Little Falls. By October 22nd, there was a democratically run strike committee. Although they had also received Aid from the more accommodationist AFL, the strikers voted unanimously to join the IWW. On October 25th, daily parades around the two factories began, continuing until a major clash on October 30th. One of the organizers described the scene. As Chief Long and his deputies clashed with the strikers, special police and patrolmen mounted on horses closed in on largely unarmed pickets with their clubs. During the riot, a local police officer was shot in the leg, a special policeman was stabbed several times, and many strikers were beaten, some to unconsciousness. The police then broke into strike headquarters at Slovak Hall, smashed up the place, and made mass arrests. Helen Schlaz was arrested a mile away. The police brought in three doctors to examine her sanity, but her lawyer quickly secured her release. A few days later, the 24-member strike committee was arrested. Some were held for a year. The Ukrainian-born Matilda Rabinowitz, a new but highly effective IWW organizer came in and, working with Helen Schlaz, kept the strikers united. They set up an all-women picket line the day after the mass arrests. IWW's Big Bill Haywood formed the Little Falls Defense League to provide living expenses and legal support for the strikers. Schlaz and Rabinowitz went on a speaking tour to raise money. Anarchist Carlo Tresco and Filippo Blochino came to help organize the Italian-speaking strikers. As Christmas neared, Rabinowitz and Schlaz won public support by announcing that strikers' children would be sent for the holidays to socialist families in Schenectady. When the paper started publishing stories of the embattled women and children, Albany politicians felt pressured to act. Just after Christmas, the State Board of Mediation held three days of public hearings in Little Falls. The strike was settled on January 3, 1913. 
on terms set by the Board of Mediation, which included rehiring of all the strikers, no discrimination against the strikers, and reinstatement of full pay rates existing prior to the work week reduction. The workers had won a great victory. And that is our story for today. For The Past is and Past, I'm Harry Richardson. now 6.46 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. contributor Teresa Yen summarizes a year in review of 2021 with the top five most memorable Gen Z moments. The year 2021 has come to a close, a year where the vaccine rollout filled us with the hope of returning to life before the pandemic, and a year where coronavirus variants disrupted family reunions during the holidays. The graduating class of 2021 got to have in-person commencement ceremonies in spring, while some students are potentially returning to online school after winter break. Overall, this year has been a roller coaster ride for all. Before we head into 2022, let's take a look at some of the top five Gen Z moments of 2021. This is Bridging the Gap, a weekly feature dedicated to exploring Gen Z culture. First on the list is the song Driver's License. On January 8, 2021, 18-year-old singer-songwriter-slash-actress Olivia Rodrigo released her first single, Driver's License, which immediately took the world by storm. I got my driver's license last week, just like we always talked about. The song topped charts everywhere and was a trending sound on TikTok for many weeks. Following the release of Driver's License, she released her first album, Sour, in May, which won her multiple Grammy nominations. Despite her music being marketed for teenagers, many millennials and older Gen Z listeners expressed their resonation with her work. Next on the list is mandated COVID testing at schools. Many schools rolled out new COVID prevention measures for spring of 2021, the most prominent one being weekly COVID testings. Contrary to the nasal swab that most are familiar with, the school-wide testings opt to collect saliva samples. According to Harvard Health Publishing, saliva samples are easier to collect and require less interaction with healthcare workers, making it more accessible to conduct school-wide testing. However, collecting saliva samples is not as simple as it sounds. Many students struggled with producing their saliva samples. Some samples required fasting one hour before the test, while others have strict criteria on what a good sample looked like. The Badger Herald, a UW-Madison student publication, reported that students were frustrated with the high rejection rate of the samples. UW-Madison even rolled out the slogan, Pool Your Drool, as an effort to help students successfully collect their saliva samples. The 2021 Olympics signaled a slight return to normalcy in our lives. 
Simone Biles was one of the most anticipated athletes to compete in the gymnastics category at the Olympics. However, after a couple of turbulent turns in the trials and the fumbling of a vault trick, Biles withdrew from the competition. She stated that she was not in the right mental state and that it would not be safe if she kept competing. Many athletes stated their support for Biles to prioritize her mental health. At a press conference at the Olympics, Biles talked about her decision to withdraw from the Games. I say um, put mental health first because if you don't, then you're not going to enjoy your sport and you're not going to succeed as much as you want to. So it's okay sometimes to even sit out the big competitions to focus on yourself because it shows how strong of a competitor and person that you really are rather than just battle through it. Following Simone Biles, we finally got to see Britney Spears freed from her conservatorship. The pop icon entered a conservatorship filed by her father in 2008, which stripped her of her agency to decide how she can live her life. She wasn't allowed to do anything, ranging from walking her dogs, seeing her children, or even post a selfie on social media without her conservator's permission. Throughout the years, her conservators were profiting off of Spears through conservator pay, trademarking the Britney Spears name, and forcing Spears to work without her consent. In 2019, people started noticing that Spears was posting weird photos and captions on her Instagram account. With deeper investigation, fans pointed out that these posts felt very forced, leading them to suspect that the pop star was being abused. Hashtag Free Britney started trending and people started exposing the masterminds behind Spears' conservatorship, Jamie Spears, Britney's own father. In June 2021, Britney Spears broke her silence on the internet and decided to take action to end her conservatorship. With support from her fans and evidence collected by her attorney that she was abused, her conservatorship was officially dissolved on November 12, 2021. In a now-deleted Instagram post, Britney Spears talked about what comes next. I've been in the conservatorship for 13 years, <laughs> so I'm just grateful, honestly, for each day and being able to have um, the keys to my car and being able to be independent and feel like a woman and um, owning an ATM card, seeing cash for the first time, being able to buy candles. It's the little things for us women, but it makes a huge difference. Last on the list is the word chugy, spelled C-H-E-U-G-Y. This word is commonly used by Gen Z on TikTok to describe trends that are considered outdated or basic. The word was first popularized to mock millennials. Some examples of things that are chugy included the overused phrase, live, laugh, love, the obsession with coffee and wine, or that liking the office is your whole personality trait. In a New York Times article by Taylor Lawrence, she finds that chugy is subjective to depending on the demographic you're asking. Actor Michael Cotto says, quote, this is the perfect word for a group of people that just don't quite get it, end quote. If you're a lover of coffee and you binge The Office on a daily, don't worry just yet about being called chuggy. Trends are starting to make comebacks and what was considered chuggy might become cool again. Or perhaps the word chuggy might even become chuggy itself and fade out of existence in a couple of months. And that's your top five Gen Z moments of 2021. For Bridging the Gap and WORT News, I'm Teresa Yen. On today's Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new science fiction movies. One, the disappointing Don't Look Up on Netflix, and on the big screen, the pretty good Matrix sequel, Matrix Resurrections. This comet is what we call a planet killer. At this exact moment, I say we sit tight and assess. Sit tight and assess?
That was a clip from the trailer for the disappointing A-list expensive looking sci-fi film Don't Look Up, directed and co-written by Adam McKay. It just started playing on Netflix. The story has a lot of potential, but it is hobbled by a mediocre script which takes pot shots at popular culture and politics, but there is also a critique of big business and how big tech won't save us. Finally, there is hope in the responses of everyday people. Our story begins with a bored grad student, Kate Dibiaski, the always watchable Jennifer Lawrence, who discovers a giant comet headed toward Earth. She quickly calls her boss, Dr. Randall Mindy, Leonardo DiCaprio, generally pulling off the nudie, anxious scientist role. They tell the proper authorities and are soon speaking with NASA scientist Dr. Clayton Teddy Rob Morgan. He rushes them to the president. So far, so good, right? Unfolding fairly realistically, but this is where things go awry. President Orlean, played by the peerless Meryl Streep, keeps them waiting all day, and then they are told to come back in the morning. Incredibly, the president, a too obvious impersonation of Trump, hears the bad news. We have six months before we all die, and says we will sit tight and assess. Our intrepid scientists, who are supposed to keep quiet, do what any rational people would do. They go public. They go straight to the New York Herald, which looks like a New York Times stand-in. The Herald people set them up to appear on a popular morning show to help spread the word and get a sense of popular reaction to the story, The Daily Rip, with two vain and apparently clueless hosts played by Tyler Perry as Jack Bremer and the great Kate Blanchett as Brie Ivanti. This take doesn't seem all that exaggerated. The hosts try to keep things light. Kate understandably loses it and says we're all going to effing die. Dr. Mindy, meanwhile, keeps his cool gets out the needed explanation, and is invited back on. Kate, however, soon loses almost everything. The president eventually takes them seriously, but only to distract the country from her involvement in a scandal. There are some funny bits here and there. Blanchett is in several, as is pop singer Rihanna Grande and Mike Rylance playing a tech giant as a sort of cross between Mr. Rogers and Jeff Bezos. But I can't recommend it. At 2 hours and 18 minutes, it ultimately plays like a too-long indulgent skit on SNL. It is unfortunate since McKay has done several good films, like The Big Short and Vice, and a fun comedy, Talladega Nights. Now for a sequel we didn't know we needed. Important choice in Neo's life. It's not his to make. She believed in me. It's my turn to believe in her. That was a clip from the trailer for The Matrix Resurrections, directed by Lana Wachowski, without her sister Lily. The two were partners on the prior three films in the Matrix series. This movie is pretty enjoyable, bringing back two key players from the original, along with some new characters. There's a lot of CGI special effects, some cool fight scenes, and fairly convincing villains. Seems like a good idea to at least see the first one, for this one to make sense. Some spoilers here if you haven't seen the earlier movies. Keanu Reeves is back in his old life as Thomas Anderson, or rather an improved version of it, where he is the maker of three popular Matrix video games, with his boss played by Jonathan Groff on him to make another. Anderson is seeing a therapist played by the exceptional Neil Patrick Harris for a suicide attempt. At this point, you may be wondering how Anderson got there, since he, spoiler, died in the last episode. Enter Jessica Henwick as Bugs, a winning role. She's a military leader of the last band of free people living in the real world outside the Matrix. Bugs, working with a transformed Morpheus, Yahel Abdul-Mateen, come to Anderson to again explain that he needs to become Neo 
Neil was the chosen one to fight the machines who really rule this world. Normal people are hooked into the computer program, The Matrix, and given artificial visions of a real life while their physical body is lying on a table feeding electricity to the needy machines. Anderson, Neil, is reluctant to get involved again. He only joins in because they may help him to get back with Trinity, Carrie Ann Moss. This propels a pretty good story with some sequel possibilities. All in all, a pretty good movie. See it on a big screen if you can do so safely. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter tonight was Ben Kern. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Teresa Yen, Brenda Conkle, and Dylan Brogan. Victor Calzoni engineered the show, Nate Weggehout produces newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.